This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And yes, this is Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive. We come to you every morning, every Friday morning, that is, at 9 o'clock with a guest. And we do more than those short two-and-a-half, three-minute interviews where I ask a guest two questions and say thank you very much for your insights and then move on to another topic which is entirely different. What we'd like to do is to have someone that we know or like or want to hear from, and we unpack their ideas about a topic. And this, of course, on Friday morning is the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we have to keep that in mind. We have to take note of that. This war has continued without let up for a year, and at this point at least, There appears to be no end in sight as more weapons arrive, as more Russian tenacity seems to be in the cards, as more Russian convicts get enlisted to join the Wagner Group, as the Ukrainians realize that this is their struggle to win or lose. It's a moment of contemplation on the the act of warfare and the nature of warfare as it affects societies. And so we invited Alan Wendt, who... W-E-N-D-E, to name to conjure with. He's a freelance writer, television producer. He's based in Johannesburg, but he can explain where he fits into the cosmos better than I can. His articles as a writer have appeared all over the place in international and South African newspapers, magazines, and on websites. And just a partial list of this includes the BBC, National Geographic Traveler, GQ, McLean's Magazine, that's Canadian, newspapers in New Zealand, the United States, the Sunday Times, Business Day, and so many others. But he's also been a television producer and correspondent, and he's worked for the full range of these organizations. And as his own website says, he's covered, get your fingers out, 15 different wars in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Are there 15 wars taking place? Gosh, they include all the places you can think of as well as some you may not have expected. Uh, but he's also a fiction writer. Um, and his most recent book is Red Air, which is about a, a U.S. Marine detachment uh, in Afghanistan that has a very difficult time of it over a, about a three or four day period. It's quite a page turner during COVID when we couldn't go out much. I got a copy of it, and I read it straight through. took me a day and a half to get to the end of it, took breaks for meals. Um, and so, Dave, so Hamilton, we are, we're really pleased to have you join us, and thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for that kind introduction, Brooks. Let me, let me, before, before we get to something like the Ukrainian <laughs> war and, and, and its impact on societies, um, because you've covered so many conflicts in so many different places, You're not a soldier, you're not a combatant, but you're an observer about as close as you can be to the actual act of fighting. What is it like to have to do that? How do you, how do you react to the process, the feeling of it, aside from keeping your head down from being shot at? Well, that's a very important question and it's something I've given a lot of thought to. Um, as an observer and Possibly a neutral observer of such a certainly an 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 uninterested not a disinterested observer perhaps uh, in terms of which side you might choose or not choose. 
you don't have that burden of fear and anger and possible shame that a soldier has if he or she has to kill somebody. You don't have that. You're free of that. And that's an important distinction. You still enter into what I call the paradox of war, which is, and I experienced this very dramatically in Afghanistan with the U.S. Marines. You feel, it's a paradox, I, I'm sort of finding it difficult to express. Um, you feel a certain anger and joy at the fact that your enemy has been taken off the field. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel that way if obviously if they had not been taken off the field. You see, the thing is they want to kill you and yeah. you can't forget that. So now particularly, and we can talk later about being embedded or not embedded. If you are seriously embedded with a military force and uh, we, we can talk, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about later. You are in essence one of them. I've never carried a gun. I've never had to carry a gun. I've never been asked to carry a gun. So I do have a certain distance from that deep and cutting emotion of kill or be killed. However, on one particular, on a number of occasions, but one particular occasion that I remember extremely well, we'd left the base on a helicopter at about 3.30 in the morning, maybe 4 in the morning. And by 6 that morning, we were walking across a poppy field in Afghanistan towards a mud walled compound which was quite a safe place to base ourselves and the marines in the i was behind the marines in the small patrol that i was was filming them and i wanted to get a, a wide shot of them walking through the field and suddenly bullets started scattering or not scattering expl not exploding but landing all around me and it was quite clear that somebody quite far away i'm glad to say was trying to shoot me and I did the South African thing that we learned. One of the conflicts I count as, as having covered is the conflict we had over the end of apartheid, which took some 15, 20 years to, to work itself out. And I, I, I hit the ground and the Marines were like, so get up and run. <laughs> so <laughs> I ran into the compound and, um, I was extremely, of course, distraught. It was a terrifying experience. I carried on filming, but Something within me was quite soul sick. I felt that, I mean, somebody had tried to kill me and the Marines were shooting back and trying to kill that person or those, those people because there was more than one of them. And at one point, I mean, there was some very complicated what they call ROE, rules of engagement, because the Marines weren't able to just simply launch an airstrike on a suspected, um, Taliban position because it had created too many, uh, collateral, too much collateral damage, too many civilians killed. So they had to isolate a very specific group of people and get a whole long chain of command that came all the way from headquarters in, in, in Kandahar or Helmand and be able to isolate that particular group and shoot them. They finally, the sergeant, the staff sergeant finally fired a javelin missile and took out three people, killed them. And the young Marines, most of them were around about the age of 20 between 19, 23, somewhere around there, all started humming and singing the tune from Top Gun. But I couldn't help feeling quite soul sick. I never saw the actual killing, thank God, but that was a confirmed kill, if you want to express it in that way. And um, I didn't, I, there, please be, let's get this straight. There was no blame attached. It was a war situation. We were in the, in the heart of the paradox of kill or be killed. Mm -hmm. And um, 
But, you know, I was 49 turning 50 that year, and I'd seen a number of wars. So I I didn't just simply revel in the experience of the enemy being killed. I, I felt strongly that other human beings had been killed, partly, I suppose, I'm thinking of this for the first time, but in a way because of me and the people around me. However, that is the paradox of war. I don't, I don't think you can make an easy kind of pacifist judgment about soldiers killing other soldiers. We're going to take a break right now just for a minute. Station identification and all the other things that go with uh, running a radio station. And we, we will be back after this. and We'll continue our conversation uh, with Hamilton Wind, who is a journalist, filmmaker, novelist, observer of humans in warfare. And we're doing this on the occasion of the first anniversary of war in Europe in Ukraine following the Russian invasion. We'll be right back. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is Brooke Spector in the Deep Dive, and we're talking with Hamilton because he has been a longtime observer of warfare, not as a soldier, not as a fighter, but as a filmmaker, uh, as, as a reporter, correspondent, and novelist observing, documenting, and explaining the nature of warfare. We're doing this in a way as an anniversary moment for the war in Ukraine. Before we took our break, uh, Hamilton was talking about his own close experience with being shot at uh, by Taliban uh, fighters uh, and how the, the Marines he was with broke into song at the end of the engagement. And the moment he said that, my mind flashed back to Stanley Kubrick's film, Full Metal Jacket, where at the end of the engagement, this is taking place in Vietnam in 1968 or 69, they finally succeed in surviving the attack, and at the end of it, they break into song. And what do they sing? M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. As a release from the tension that has transpired for the last number of hours. You were talking about the way in which all that anxiety, all that anger, all that fear, all that high-end emotion suddenly comes to an end, and you have to do something with it. And this is what soldiers, I guess, have to do. Yeah, you do have to do something with it, and um, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I'm hesitating because I'm trying to think of how you deal with that level of stress, because if you're the one who pulled the trigger, that's a, a very specific human experience, or in ancient times, if you're the someone who wielded the sword or, or the spear. And it's not an experience I've actually had, and, and I'm grateful for that, that I've never been put in that psychological logjam, really, of having had to kill somebody. And let me say, the Marines I was with were an extremely honorable group of fighters. There was no kind of you know, descent into anarchy or brutality. They actually, many of them had tremendous respect for the Taliban. And that's another paradox that comes out of war. A lot of combatants will tell you that they actually, in the end, respected the enemy. And we've seen this often. Um, it's now getting very increasingly rare, but with combatants who faced each other on the other side of the war, either in Vietnam or even in the Second World War, they come together and they sometimes cry and share emotions and, and memories and create a bond that seems almost impossible to people who haven't been there, who haven't been part of that conflict. And um, there is 
having survived that level of violence and chaos and explosions in, in modern war, there's, there's no, there's no modern war where there's not an explosion is a very profound thing. You walk away with a, a renewed appreciation of life and of the life you have and of the, and, 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 and appreciation of a greater gratitude, I should say, for what you have and what could have been left behind. Your respect for the men and increasingly now the women who are alongside you is something that you also share. Again, I come back. That's the paradox. That's Achilles and Patroclus going back to the Iliad, you know, that kind of deep comradeship. It certainly goes back to Homer writes about it. In, and, you know, I'm not a Greek expert, but I've read my Iliad and my Odyssey. And, um, you know, it goes right back to our earliest roots. It's I wish we didn't have that in our nature. I mean, my God, I remember another time in, in, on the border between the Rwanda and what was the former Zaire, mortar shells flying overhead, landing in Lake Kivu. And then we we ran up a hill. And it was, it started to rain, so it became incredibly muddy, and we ran down just a little bit below the crown of the hill, and these mortars were landing all around us, and I mean, we had a guy with us who'd been at the Battle of Grozny, which was when the Russians destroyed the Chechen capital back in the early 90s, and I mean, he was really deeply traumatized, more than we were, because... He expected something on the level of the destruction of a city to follow next. That was his subconscious kind of memory from the sound of the explosions and, and the force of the explosions. We didn't have that memory. So we were more relaxed than him. And again, it's not a matter of judgment. I mean, it's a matter of human experience. When you were doing that, I was thinking of uh, a phrase that I believe is attributed to General William Tecumseh Sherman. It is, it is well that war is so terrible, lest we grow too fond of it. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, I don't think I would go back to Helmand province or to the border between Rwanda and Zaire again. I also covered the Rwandan genocide, which was not only a war, but a genocide. And that's that in it. So we had two strands of, of horror and fear running through our daily existence. I was in Rwanda for two weeks. That, of course, that's a different discussion. We talking to about war. Yeah, look, having survived a war is a powerful thing that's difficult to express to the folks back home or to the people back home. You are left with certain scars, certain post-traumatic scars. I mean, I don't suffer very badly from post-traumatic stress. I'm very, very, very glad to say. But friends of mine do, and, and, and one of them in particular has been hospitalized on a number of occasions for depression, anxiety, that he just simply can't can't shake. Again, I become silent because you're talking about such deep inchoate emotion, not something that's e- easy and flippantly kind of easy to express. Uh, you know, I'm grateful for the honor that I saw in war, the honor of soldiers. There is something about men or people in uniform that is usually... I would say in the majority of cases provide some kind of, and some kind of limit to the violence and to the, and to the willingness to engage in violence. And that's what a lot of military training is about is to take that instinct that is within all of us, that killer instinct that can be unleashed and to channel it into highly disciplined ways of acting. I'm of an age that my father was in World War II and his brothers and 
uh, various in-laws all were the same age cohort. And I can't remember more than one or two occasions where any of them talked afterwards in my childhood about it in front of me. It was almost as if that was then, this is now, we no longer have to talk about it. Or perhaps we don't want to horrify you so much with it, you'll be scarred even before you have a chance to grow up. Never quite was sure, but there are only two or three small examples I can even summon out of memory uh, in which they described or discussed anything was associated, and in a couple of cases, combat. That leads me to a question, uh, and part of it obviously relates to what you have done, which is to write novels which deal with the texture in addition to straight reporting. What books do you think are the most effective, perhaps, in conveying that larger picture? If I were to send somebody off to the library or the bookstore to pick up two or three, what would you have them read? Well, I would go back to the Iliad. I found the Odyssey more interesting, actually. So perhaps the Odyssey, which also incorporates the Trojan War in in its kind of uh, storyline. There's a book written by a journalist, and he only published one amazing book called Dispatches by Michael Herr, who was... Um, excellent book, yeah. It's an amazing book, and it really, it gets at the paradox of war through that, you know, I'm, I'm just looking up at my bookshelf on the side, so you'll excuse me turning away from from the screen. I'm just trying to think of some of the classics. Well, the 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 Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane is it is Stephen Crane, isn't it? Yes, it uh, is. That book somehow is extraordinary in its in its innocence, sort of the the innocence of the the protagonist who then encounters the horrific industrialized killing of the American Civil War. Those are some of the books. I mean, there there are a lot of books. Hemingway, for all his machismo, his early stuff is really quite good. The later Hemingway, I never got on with. Um, I I felt that he was was reaching after effect. But his very early... Too much Hemingway, not enough story. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good way of putting it. You know, myself in writing Red Air... I felt that I really tried never to make a moral statement or a moral judgment and to use story and metaphor as a way of explaining the unexplainable, of a way of entering into the heart of the paradox. And many soldiers and ex-soldiers are like that. I also had an uncle who was at... um, El Alamein in, in, the, in North Africa, South African uncle. I had another uncle in America who was a, a doctor with the Marine Corps on the Kazavak helicopters. Um, and they never really talked about it. My uncle I, in, in South Africa who had been at El Alamein was also of that generation where you didn't talk. And I did talk to him once and the best he could come up with was, well, it kind of made you angry that the Germans were firing all those shells at us. He couldn't say more than that. It wasn't within his his capacity, his kind of psychological capacity to express himself, and he wouldn't have regarded it as seemly, I don't think, to do so. I think people are doing that more these days, and it's certainly something in the right moment you can talk about it. You know, you have to be aware when we were growing up in in, in the late 60s in, in, in Johannesburg, there were a lot of men who'd been to World War II and we used to joke about, ah, stop telling war stories. You can start to dominate people's experience, their experience of life with your ex- experience of extreme life and death on the front line. So that 
This is Brooks Vector in the Deep Dive, and we'll be right back. This is the Deep Dive with Brooks Spector. This is Brooks Spector with the Deep Dive conversation we had during the station break about the way in which a Ukrainian soldier might react uh, rather differently in his or her war than an American might have in Afghanistan or even elsewhere. Amplify that, please. Well, yes, I think that... Um since World War II, certainly, even to some degree in World War II, American soldiers, for example, were not fighting for their own homeland. I mean, in Vietnam, they certainly weren't. And the suffering and horror that they witnessed, and let's crucially understand this, that they were forced by circumstance to inflict on other people, was something that many of them came away feeling was pointless, perhaps even wrong. And that's not a feeling that a Ukrainian soldier would have. They were invaded. Doesn't matter what Vladimir Putin says about this nonsense that the West started the war. They've been invaded by an enemy who they really never really wanted to be an enemy of. But that feeling of, of betrayal must be very deeply embedded in their psyche and their willingness to fight and to fight to the very bitter end, I think is something we haven't seen in a major war in this world for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, they know who they're fighting against. They know what they're fighting for. And they, I guess most of them know what the end game looks like if they don't succeed. Yeah, it is very different. I remember one of the, the officers I, I worked with in the, in the Marine Corps after when President Biden decided in, in, a, in a somewhat chaotic way to pull the Americans and, 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 and NATO out of Afghanistan, his father had fought in the Vietnam War and had really suffered tremendous psychological problems as a result. And, you know, this particular officer was actually, he remains in the service and is, is doing incredibly well. But he said, you know, it seems to me that both myself and my father have fought wars that we lost. And I didn't know what to say to him. You know, that that's a powerful emotion that I think many People in, in the United States, Britain, um, other countries who served in Iraq or Afghanistan must feel the Ukrainian experience is very different. It will be the emotions that you're talking about, your friend, the, the Marine and his father in Vietnam and Afghanistan, both when the and when or if the Russians lose their campaign or at best come out with a very small partial loaf of victory, they're going to feel the same way. I suspect they're going to feel something on the order of, of the way the ex-soldiers did in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front and then in the successor novel, A Long Walk Home. And of course, that's a novel I should have mentioned when you asked me about books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's worth rereading in any case. Uh, even if you've seen the recent film or the older one, it is definitely worth a reread. I, I did that during COVID, too because you start on one side of your bookshelf and you start taking down one book at a time until you, yeah. until you, until you get to the end of it. But, I mean, the Ukrainians, even if they gain a partial success, they will feel, I'm sure, very differently than the Russians who will, soldiers who will feel that they, they were marched off to some conflict far from home for no particular reason. I think that's really true. And it struck me over the last couple of nights watching tremendous amount of coverage NATO and the West 
saying, listen, Russia has to be defeated. Now, if I were a Russian, I would almost certainly be against this war. If other people I know might be in two minds about it. But certainly being a Russian, being told that we must be defeated is a difficult pill to swallow. I'm not saying NATO's wrong about that, but I do think that we need to try as people who believe in peace and democracy down here in South Africa, we're in a different kind of mindset and a position in relation to the war. But there are demonstrably millions of Russians, some of whom have left the country in, in distress, who are against this war and really, really feel frightened, angry, betrayed by their dictatorial leader, Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's demonstrable. How one reaches that core of society, I think, is something that perhaps the West is not thinking strongly enough about. Because these, I mean, if you saw the pictures last night that the um, founder of the Wagner Group uh, mm. put up on on social media of literally a warehouse full of cheap pine coffins of his dead mercenary soldiers. I mean, that level of killing is not was not seen by the West in Afghanistan. It was not even seen by the Americans in Vietnam. It was certainly not seen by the Western powers in Iraq. I'm sure the Ukrainians are seeing a similar amount of, of death. I think it must be extremely difficult for liberal, open-minded Russians to be told that their nation must be defeated and at the same time watch their me young men go into a war that is clearly unjust. That That's clearly a Russian conundrum, something on the order of, I, I, I've seen various numbers. I, I, I've seen anything between 100,000 and, and close to a million Russians have, have uh, deserted their, their particular ship to find someplace else to, to hang their hat. Uh, and that's going to have an enormous impact on Russia itself because many of them are the better educated, more skilled, more knowledgeable. They have gone on to find homes in Georgia and Azerbaijan and uh, uh, the Eastern European nations and further afield, uh, leaving behind those people who are going to get drafted, whether they like it or not, in mobilization number two and three and four that the Russians will end up with. Those pictures you refer to of Pogorny looking over his... Uh, dead mercenaries. There's another part of that picture. I'm not sure whether you saw that one, which is the field of, of graves. Mm. Um, that It's on a snowy field. There are mounds and uh, there's a there's a cross and an occasional Islamic symbol, a crescent, and it stretches for a very long distance. And those are people who clearly were not imbued with a sense of the rightness of their their struggle. I'm sure that's right. Look, I, I think that the psychological damage that is being done, I mean, of course, to the Ukrainians, but to the Russians, because it's the Russians who can stop this war. They could stop it tomorrow. That's clear. We don't know what a victory would look like. And the Russians kind of do, but it would be a brutal, unjust victory that would certainly destroy their sense of self-worth if they, they conquered Ukraine and oppressed it. Um, I I think that's a real conundrum because um, this is a really, really important conflict and I don't really know what the resolution is. And, and I've heard journalists asking people from NATO and the West, what is a victory? And they prevaricate. They don't really answer. Yeah. Um, in World War II, the answer was clear. 
the mm. defeat of the Axis powers. In the First World War, although history now is a little, little, muggy, a little more confusing than it was back then, it was the defeat of the Central Powers. We now know it was a little more complex than that. Uh, in Vietnam, if you were Vietnamese, it was the French and then the Americans going away. Um, in Iraq, it was totally unclear to my eye uh, what our ultimate goal as Americans were. Uh, in Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires in which people for the last 1,500 years have tried to conquer one way or another. Nobody has been particularly successful at it, and no one has a particularly clear and precise meaning of what constituted a victory except for the Afghans. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously for the Ukrainians, it's the Russians must leave. Russia is certainly much less powerful than we had thought it was. But um, will Russia be happy with such an outcome? I don't know. I, I don't think you know either. Um, it's a real conundrum. And But what I do know is, 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 as we talked about earlier, the experience of the soldiers on the Ukrainian side will be markedly different from the psychological trauma that the Russian, except for people who are genuine believers in the kind of Russian special vision of themselves, which is another kind of thing that Putin has tapped into. But, you know, many, many Russians clearly don't believe in it and uh, would, don't believe in this war and didn't want it in, in the first place. And I think that's something that the world needs to try in some way. And I don't know, it's not easy because Putin controls the airwaves and the, and the Internet to a large degree. But in some way, reach. Uh, I don't think the West is doing enough to reach out to those people in Russia who are so deeply conflicted by what Putin has forced them into. And I think that is something that, that, that could be done more successfully and with more thought. You know, it's quite clear that, as I said earlier, a lot of Russians don't want this war. There is a theory that I've read by a number of analysts now that breakup of the old Soviet empire stretching from western reaches of East Germany to the far extremities of, of the old Soviet Union in Siberia. It broke up when its time came and the Eastern European nations hived themselves off, mostly. An East German border guard opened the gates and Berliners um, poured through that gate. And that was sort of the end of things for East Germany. And then the other nations from Poland to Bulgaria followed suit, uh, some more peaceably than others, obviously. The second wave came about when the constituent republics of the old Soviet Union from Estonia on through to Tajikistan basically uh, broke away uh, more easily than others, some of them. But there's still within Russia itself, and it's easy to forget this, there are still whole groups of ethnicities, whether they're Chechens or Azeris or Tartars or Buryats or 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 the infamous or famous Cossacks who are yeah, evenly yeah. split between Ukraine and Russia. And the argument is that the breakup of the Soviet Union is only partially done. Now it's time for the constituent entities within the Russian Federation itself to figure out their destinies, respectively. And that resolution may become one of the after effects of losing the war in Ukraine. Well, it was some years back, but I was in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and briefly in Azerbaijan. And absolutely, I mean, 
people there really felt, get rid of the Russians. You know, this is our time now. It's our identity. We were crushed by the Tsar. We were crushed by the Soviets, um, particularly in the, in the civil wars that raged in the 1920s. And we were conquered. And we don't want Russians telling us what to do. I mean, that, that sense of, of nationalism and self-pride was very important to people in, in those areas. I think something that struck me, that has struck me, I did a story for CNN, uh, last year speaking to a old ANC in Konto Wesizwe veteran who basically said, you know, to him, Russia, and he was a bit unclear about whether he really meant Russia or the Soviet Union was our ally. And the West was the sellouts and Ukrainians have sold out to the West in his estimation. And he said a very powerful thing and it did resonate. He said, look, the white people in South Africa backed by the West called us terrorists, whereas the Russians called us comrades. Now, of course, he kind of glides over the fact that many, many Soviet people were actually trained in, in Ukraine as well. But his broader point is interesting. And um, what struck me is how much people in Eastern Europe suffered under Russian domination, because let's put it, it was Soviet domination, but it was Russian-led Soviet domination. And their experience of Russia is completely different to those of people in Africa and perhaps in Asia and, and India and places like that. So Russia does find itself straddling this kind of global paradox, really. And um, I don't think we in South Africa have really worked out how to deal with that. Part of that, what you just said, in, in a funny kind of way, the Ukrainians have managed not to be able to capitalize on the fact that there were, after all, a significant number of people like the man you were interviewing who really were trained in what is now Ukraine, given a choice, I guess, between doing exercises in Moscow or exercises in Odessa. I mean, any rational person would have picked <laughs> Odessa in the winter. Of course. Part of me says that there has been very little effort to reach to those people as a uh, as as a uh, force to uh, say, wait a minute, now these people we need to we need to be more careful about how we describe who our allies and friends are, and we'll let that one hang just for a minute, and we're going to take our final station break. This is the deep dive. This is Brooke Spector, and we're talking to journalist, filmmaker, novelist, and military philosopher. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back. And this is The Deep Dive. I'm Brooke Spector, your host, and we're speaking with Allenton Wind. He is a journalist. He is a filmmaker. He has been in conflict zones around the world, documenting not only the conflict, but the way in which the people in it have to deal with that conflict and how they uh, how they focus on where they are and what it means. And Hamilton, we've got just a couple of minutes left, so carry on with that last point you were making, and then let's wrap it up if you can. Yeah, look, I think that um, Ukraine didn't, perhaps they did sort of expect this, but invasion was almost out of the blue in terms of it, it sort of manifesting itself within mere months. Um, and, you know, Russia has an international footprint that Ukraine doesn't have. 
the bit that I've been watching in Africa and in, in South Africa in particular is confusing because, um, you know, it's understand, I mean, it's understandable that many people on this continent feel that the West often betrayed them and betrayed particularly the values of freedom and equality that they preached for white people in their home countries and did not necessarily or did absolutely in many cases did not support the freedom struggle of Africans on the continent for their own dignity and freedom and equality. You know, one of the most egregious things that the Americans did, for example, it's almost certain that the CIA were the people who provided South African security police the location of Nelson Mandela when he was arrested in, in KwaZulu-Natal. And those kind of hurts really run very deep. And the Russians have been, ex- the Soviet Union was certainly no society that I would have wanted to be part of, and I'm desperately glad I never was, but they certainly stepped up to the plate in terms of African liberation movements. And the West very often was on the wrong side of those African liberation movements from, from the Congo, which is now the DRC, right through the former Rhodesia, the two big Portuguese colonies, Angola and Mozambique, um, and on very often on the side of apartheid South Africa. So that's a circle that the Ukrainians can't really square easily because they weren't that necessarily involved except in so far as they were part of the Soviet Union. Um, I do think in our country there is a an unnecessary nostalgia for this freedom struggle, parity of purpose in the past. And I think that that is, is definitely clouding some of the judgment However, if you look at these naval operations that are happening off our coastline as we speak, I also thought about that. It's Again, it's a difficult circle to square because they are a BRICS initiative, and South Africa is an integral part of BRICS. And um, so they can't simply just take the side of the West that that easily. And But I do think that they've been quite thoughtless in proclaiming their neutrality and in calling out the Russians for their very clear abuse of human rights and of international law. We've been speaking with Hamilton Wend, novelist, journalist, filmmaker, philosopher on war and what it does to to the men and women who have to fight them. Hamilton, it's been a real pleasure to, to, to talk to you. We have to do this again. I appreciate your willingness and your candor in talking about your own experiences and the way in which you've had to deal with the people who were there when you were documenting what it was they were doing. And we will say thank you to the audience. Thank you. This is The Deep Dive. This is Brooke Spector. We'll be back again next week, and we hope you'll tune in again. And we'll talk to you then with another guest who will offer us useful thoughts and insights.